Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast. Our goal is to help technical professionals accelerate their career progression, increase their job satisfaction, and bring you the advice we wish had been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, John White, at VJourneyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Corty, at NetworkNerd underscore. We both work in the tech industry with backgrounds in IT operations and sales engineering. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to career enlightenment. So let's take a trip. All right. Welcome to part one of our two-part, maybe three-part discussion with Nicholas Arone. This is episode 257 and a couple different points that I would recommend people listen out for. First was, this is mentioned a couple different times with the, the career strategy and tactics that Nicholas used. He, at several different points, mentioned how he addressed his future by examining the past. And that was done in a number of different ways, but I don't want to ruin it for you. The second point, I think I would call this the contrast between product owner and product manager. And this is really in the context of Nicholas's career at IBM, managing an agile development team that kind of roamed around. But you know what? Instead of me giving my take on all of this, why don't I just throw you directly into the episode, episode 257, part one of our discussion with Nicholas Arun. Nicholas Arone, thanks for joining us on the Nerd Journey podcast. Thanks for having me on, John. Happy to be here. So can you tell me a little bit about what it is that you do today, like what your job title is, and maybe like a just a brief overview of what that looks like? Yeah, sure. So currently, I'm a senior manager in product management, specifically in cloud management, VMware. So my day-to-day pretty much entails focusing in on cloud automation. Uh, if you've heard of the VMware Aria automation platform, that is the focus of myself and my team for anyone doing private cloud or multi-cloud uh, in the public cloud space, trying to automate workloads, management, day two operations. Uh, I have the uh, privilege of managing that platform. Very cool. Can we maybe rewind and talk about how you got into technology, like what your uh, like early life exposure was? Funny you should ask. So I think my earliest vivid memory of technology is when my father brought home an old 286. I think it was a Packard Bell going back that far. So sometime in the, in the mid 80s, right? You know, I think even at that point it was even, uh, it was an orange monochrome screen, right? Playing things like Centipede. And so it kind of really got pulled in at like a young age. I think at that point I probably would have been seven or eight. And, you know, from there, I kind of had this epiphany that, um, hey, I want to do something in tech. This is fun, you know, kind of the unknown. And from there, kind of, I think my next system was like an IBM 286, 386, something like that. And, you know, the more I got into it, I had this like grand aspirations of, hey, I'm going to go work for IBM. That was something that just kind of ebbed and flowed as I, as I got older, got, you know, 
got into you know high school, deciding what I'm going to do when I grow up, so to speak. Um, and that was always in the back of my mind. And so that's kind of what I had set my mind to. Uh, I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do in tech, right? Because I think we tend to in tech myopically look at, oh, well, am I going to be a developer? Am I going to you know, be some sort of IT person? But like any business, right, tech is much bigger than that. It operates as a business, right? This place that we work at needs to make money. And so how am I going to contribute to uh, that bigger picture? And honestly, I started off in community college, right? Because I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. And thinking about running a business, right, I wanted to be a little bit more fiscally responsible. So I went to community college, which was a fraction of what even state university was, and kind of did a little exploration. And I kind of backed into my associate's degree. I kind of wound up getting a, an associate's in business administration, but did a lot of my core stuff and then transferred on to a four-year university. I don't think that it's something that we've consciously talked about before, but it's true that the early life exposure to technology brands tends to cement like what our view of technology is. So if you play video games and it's like, oh, Microsoft, you know, Xbox or PlayStation, you know, if you have a computer, then that brand of computer tends to represent, you know, or the brands that are available, you know, in the marketplace tend to represent what computing is. I don't think that I've ever really thought about that before, but it, it rings true. It's interesting and, and something to kind of let listeners know and think about, right? Because a lot of it sometimes is subconscious, right? Because we're exposed to these brands, we're exposed to this technology, and then some people are really good at breaking down what it might take to you know, produce a product, let's say, especially looking at it being a product person. I really had this aspiration of not only to some extent working at IBM, but being you know, what we refer to as a lifer, right? But there's some things that we have to look at in not only the industry, but just in the general development of businesses, right? It used to be, right, you get a job and you work your way up the ladder or you're in it for 20 or 30 years, you, you retire with a nice pension. And growing up through and graduating high school, as I date myself here in the late 90s, a lot of stuff was starting to transition, right? You had companies moving away from pensions, starting to go to 401ks. You had a lot more people thinking about, well, instead of working in one company, maybe working 10 or 12 jobs, I'm going to go maybe work for 10 or 12 companies and do two, three, four years here and there. And there's nothing wrong with either one, right? I think part of it is what you as an individual are aspiring to and what you feel comfortable with. And then they also think that you have to live in the world in which we operate in, right? And sometimes those align and sometimes they don't. So that would be kind of my you know, first kind of career advice, if you will, is to just realize and be open to what's going on in the industry and knowing that there's always change, um, but it's your ability to adapt to that change and to see opportunities, right? There's all these futurists, right? The folks that almost feel like they have a crystal ball. They're, they're being open, right? And they're seeing opportunities. And your career is very much the same thing. You have to kind of understand where you're going, but at the same time, you have to be adaptable to the journey that you're on and the opportunities that are presented along the way. That is a really interesting lesson to learn that you might grow up in an era where there's a job norm, but that job norm might change. So if you grew up in the 80s, there was definitely uh, a large company culture of you start at the bottom and then you have your entire career at that job. And 
And maybe you change jobs once and maybe twice, you know, after, you know, eight years, 10 years, something like that. But probably changing more often than that is, would be very abnormal. But then there was the kind of dot-com era where people would change jobs every two years. And that became the, like a shocking new normal of, hey, this is how you get raises. You just jump to another job and that's absolutely normal and acceptable. And then it seems like we're, we've exited that time. And now if you grew up in that time and you think, oh, I'm just going to change jobs every two years, like you're going to stick out, right? Again. <laughs> I, I had a former coworker of mine uh, that had this saying, um, and it was kind of good advice and, you know, it's a little flippant, but it, it kind of drives home the point. You got to jump to get the bump. And, and kind of what's behind that to break that down for, for the listeners is, you have to know your value in the market, right? And I think we've seen a lot of that just in the past, you know, four years with the pandemic. The, the market soared, right? Companies like Zoom and others, people went to remote work. But then what we saw on the flip side of that is the course correction in the industry, right? There was some overhiring. And even if the numbers were higher before, there was still a reduction because that growth is not long-term sustainable. And so you have to know your value in the marketplace. I know a number of people throughout their career, if you're always just chasing a single thing, no matter what it is, usually it's money, right? That you may be missing the opportunity and the growth to stretch yourself in other areas. But also, if you're not in line with what the market is commanding, like anything in a supply and demand economy, you're going to be in trouble because it puts you off kilter. You were talking about the the marked difference between longevity at one place versus a series of leaps between companies. Which one of those was modeled for you by your family and the other adults that you were around as you were thinking about pursuing something in tech? I'm just really curious now that we're on that point. Yeah. So I, I think the same way technology influences us, our family, right? Our backgrounds, our, our daily influences. So I grew up you know, my mom was stay at home. A mom, very thankful for that because I had the opportunity to learn a lot from her. I think a lot of my resiliency and optimism is a reflection of her. Um, my father was an accountant and there was many jobs he had. And so early on, I had this form and notion of changing jobs sometimes because there's an opportunity you want to. And then other times, you know, as we hear the terms resource, ra uh, resource action, reduction, workforce, so forth, that you're not always in control. And even sometimes if you put your best foot forward and you're a top performer, there's things outside of your control. There's decisions that need to be made, unfortunately, at a higher level. So a lot of that influence that I got from my family and, and kind of each one of my career segments, if you will, because that's the way I look at it, right? You can't look forward and say, well, here's my career. Like, this is how it's going to lay out. I mean, you can, but you're kind of setting yourself up for some, some disappointments, right? Because there's so many other pieces and people involved that you can kind of plot a trajectory um, and maybe head north, but you may go more like northeast or, or northwest and so forth. But for me, each one, as I look back, I try and take those nuggets of gold in how they prepared me for my next opportunity. And as I look through and tell that story, and as a product person and anyone in product, the good ones really tell stories, right? Because at the end of the day, we're trying to get other people to buy a product 
And buying into that is more than the product. It's the vision. It's the value. It's why are you parting with money or time that you're going to invest into a product that ultimately you're making a decision on, not just the product itself. Yeah, I like that. So if you had this goal to get into tech, but you studied more of a business focus, how did you keep yourself from not getting disappointed in continuing to pursue that? Good question. So I should probably fill in a little color for, for, for you all in the audience. So after I got my associate's degree, I did go on to a four-year university and I was very fortunate in a lot of calculation and trying to figure out this goal of how do I get out with the least amount of debt, right? So I tried to transfer as many credits as I could. I focused in on the business and general core courses so I could really focus in on what ultimately I was going to major in. I wound up majoring in information technology. And I think it was like the first or second year at my school that they had it. So this is you know early 2000s, still very much emerging. And so trying to understand navigating this, right? Because they're trying to build a course around it and trying to figure out what courses to offer, what's practical, like what are employers going to be paying for? And it's what we always say. There's some people that are very gifted in tech. And we see this a lot in recent years where companies are dropping the requirement to have advanced degrees. And there's some people that just have an aptitude for that, right? Problem solving with tech. And I'm not saying one way or the other is better or worse. I think you have to know yourself, your capabilities, your desires, your basically balancing out what it is you naturally can do and then you know the amount of work you're willing to put into to get there. And for each one of us, I think we have to ask that question. So I went on, got a four-year degree, and just so happened that my university happened to be down the street from IBM Poughkeepsie. And so there's a little kind of this irony if you look through, okay, I'm, I'm eight years old, I want to work for IBM. Um, wow, this, this seems attainable, right? And I graduated in the off season. What I mean by that is I basically had to do like an extra semester because of the transfer. So I graduated in December, which I'm thinking this is cool, right? Because now I'm not fighting with all the masses of graduates in the spring, but I still had this journey of, you know, loans are going to start coming due. That's the reality. I got to start, you know, being, a, being an adult. At this point, I'm still sending faxes out. My resumes are going out over faxes through the PC, again, dating myself. And I was just like, listen, I need my chance, right? I'd worked, my father had, had been at a company. And so earlier on, I did some stuff around databases in-house with AS400. Just anything I could do to like get legitimacy, if you will, right? To get knowledge, get legitimacy, and have a resume that didn't just say, hey, I worked at TJ Maxx doing you know, retail, which I did, by the way, and, um, you know, because you have to pay the bills when you're in high school and in, in college. So again, some of that fortitude of just, hey, I'm willing to work and I have goals. So I'm still asking myself, well, what exactly do I want to do in tech, right? I've got the business acumen somewhat, although it's all academic. I've, I've got some of the tech stuff now. I'm glad, you know, doing it. And I remember I got the opportunity to go to what they formally called, I'm, I'm not even sure if they do these anymore, an invitational from IBM. And essentially, we went up to Southbury, Connecticut, and they flew people in from all over the country, you know, recent grads, soon to be graduated grads and so forth. And you kind of got to go on the tour of the Southbury race floor, you know, get to speak to people that, again, that were at IBM for 25 years and are telling you about the six or eight jobs that they started out in the mailroom. And it was really inspirational. And then the next day, you literally go on like eight interviews, right? So either folks you wanted to interview with, at the time they called them towers, so different business groups and so forth. But on the flip side, you also had the opportunity to say, hey, I kind of want to 
you know, I want to interview for that. And so it was an opportunity to kind of have like six or seven interviews in one spot. It was kind of like speed dating uh, is probably the best way to describe it. From there, I got an opportunity and my first job was a, a DB2 UDB DBA. And I'll be honest with you, my interview, and this is where I learned how to interview other people, they knew I didn't know anything about DB2 because it's like anyone outside of IBM at that point is like, DB2 what? I knew I'd done some Oracle in, in university and so forth. So the common constructs and, and so forth and the technical aspects of, of creating a relational database and designs. But it was the fact that earlier on they were looking for someone in the role that could be learned, like they could learn stuff. They could also provide some infusion of like newer ways of doing things that coming out of academia. So this, this kind of balance. They were looking for someone that could communicate, right? So in tech sometimes, right, we have really smart people and you're like, I'm sorry, I know you just said a lot of stuff and it sounds really smart, but how do I translate that into business value? Or how do I go tell our executive that? Or how do I go tell a potential customer that? And so they were looking for someone that had these raw skills. And those first couple of years, I learned a ton from these folks, like the political aspect of it, the technical aspect to it, it was quite an exciting time. And so I felt like I always got my, my ultimate wish as a kid. I got to work at IBM. I got to have, in the end, I think four or five different jobs before I ultimately decided I wanted to have another challenge and basically left and went on to, to several other companies and doing a startup. And then ultimately, like 20 years later, you know, landing at VMware. And so it's been, it's been a great journey, but every way I've learned that I've got to look back to my skills. I've got to learn new skills. I've got to build my own brand as a product manager. We all don't have all the right answers, but a lot of product management that I like, if you think about a hub and spoke, right? PMs are usually smack in the middle. They're talking to sales. They're talking to marketing. They're talking to engineering. They're talking to customers, partners, et cetera. And so we get to have a very, I will call it unique and full view of the business and see things and have the opportunity to help influence and move things forward because we do have a lot of perspectives, right? We've got to balance it, right? It can't be A or B. It's got to be somewhere in the middle and balancing the, the, the strategy we have if we really want to be successful. Were you exposed to product management while you were at IBM or was it like an early series, like a little bit more focused on infrastructure or engineering? I'm glad you, you asked that, John. So this is where I would say for our listeners, there is probably this idea of, of the, the concept of change. And we know change is hard. And we talked about that a little bit uh, before. But ultimately, I was on a development team. So I had progressed kind of to the latter half of my career, like what I would say is in the last five years of my IBM career, and got an opportunity to become a software developer doing Java, right? And what's funny is, I didn't get to do Java when I was at university. We, they were still doing C++. So I had to kind of learn that. Um, but there was an opportunity where we were a really small knit team, but we were constantly getting inundated with requests from other stakeholders. And what we quickly learned is we were getting requirements. We were, we were churning them out. But then the, the request said, well, that's, that's what I asked for. That's not exactly what I need, right? And so it kind of led me down this path of, well, why is it? Like, did we not ask the right questions? Do you not even know the requirements? Like, how are we going to reconcile this? And so the first opportunity was working with a few other people. And there was this new thing. So this goes back to late 2000s, this new thing called Agile and Scrum. And we're like, what is this? And we're trying to figure out ways to reinvent 
the team. Like, how are we going to do this? How can we have some more agility and show the value to the business? So fast forward, you know, we're reading all the material on all the blogs at that point, thinking, you know, the internet was slightly different back then, right? The, the, the amount of access to certain pieces of information. Luckily, there were still blogs and people that were passionate about such things. But Agile at that point was not a thing. Like the manifesto had been written in 94. Some teams were doing it, but it was really kind of this niche thing that people were developing. You had these boutique software development shops and it worked well. And so we went and convinced management, hey, we want to do this. And here are the values and the reasons, right? And we kind of put together that business plan to justify that. And we got the opportunity. And they saw very quickly dividends on you know, doing this, this investment. Now, I'd be lying if I said we knew what the heck we were doing. And one of the beauties of, of Scrum or Agile and the whole concept, and sometimes people refer to Agile as the big A being the... the the process of Agile, and then the little A being the Agile. Well, we can just pivot, and that's called chaos sometimes. So you have to be very careful uh, which Agile you are. And ultimately, we got so much success with it. And again, we iterated. We did retrospectives. We, we learned and we asked questions about, is this working? What is not working, right? And we adapted it, and we grew and we grew. And this is a team at one point that was five engineers, and at most 12, and we were being called on by other business groups to go do things that in their own words, were like, we're just not sure how you're doing this, this efficiently, but can you help us? And so that in itself was kind of this, I think we're on to something here. And so that's when I kind of made that transition to your question, John, where everyone on the team was like, yeah, I don't want to talk to people. Like I'm comfortable talking within the team. I just want to write code or I want to architect or I want to develop. And I was like, well... You know, I'm a decent developer, but I, I can go talk to anyone and this is fun. And I understand our products and I understand our platform and I can talk the tech to the point where I understand it and I can also convey it to our engineers and put in requirements. So that's kind of when I went from being kind of this part-time developer and product owner, right? And I really love the term product owner because the word owner, I think people tend to really associate with, well, that's the person who's accountable product manager, we're great. But I think sometimes we can be led astray into thinking, well, I just manage this thing. But there's really a sense of ownership. So whether it be a product owner or a PO or project manager um, or a product manager or PM, really at the end of the day, your goal is to make sure that you take ownership of that product and you do the best you can for the product and for your customers and your stakeholders. Now, were you doing any form of like project management for this team around this time of Agile and Scrum implementation? Or was that not really a term anyone was using? So I think up until that point, just before I come to that team, I'd done a major project, if you will, actually on IBM.com. So there's a transformation. And again, I say this stuff and people are going to think about like, wow, that's interesting. But this was like when companies were starting to do online sales, right? Like, and you could go into ibm.com slash products and you could configure, you know, a System X machine or, you know, a System Z or whatever it was, right? And I was working on that as a project manager to be able to essentially let someone go in and do what we call the configuration. So, hey, I want this much memory, this much storage, right? And there's a lot of heavy lifting because that's a direct revenue stream. So I got the project management skills from that and just 
I think personally, personality wise, I like I like to take the pieces, fit them together and say, okay, I need you to do this. You're on target for that. And so I applied some of that, but generally you want to be very distinctive. There is a form or a skill set of being a product manager that you kind of have to project manage yourself and the moving pieces, but there are two distinct roles, right? Because you could take someone that literally is managing a Microsoft plan document or so forth and just making sure, are we on track? Are we on track? Are we on track? But from a project management, I'm only scratching the surface here. A product manager is looking at, am I returning the value that the customer expects? Am I growing? Is the product being seen as valuable? Is the customer going to renew? And this is even more important in the day and age of SaaS, right? Whereas if I'm not seeing the value, if I can't justify it to myself or maybe to my executives or stakeholders, then I have to seriously consider if I've got to cut, your product may be what I'm cutting if I can't justify that it's actually driving value for me. And so as a product, product manager, I'm looking to how do I make sure my customers are sticky? And not just sticky because they don't have another choice, but because even if there is another choice, they're going to compare it and say, this product is way better. It lets me achieve my outcomes. It may not have a thousand features, but it has the features I need and provides the value I need. We can be very quick to conflate what I'll call feature fatigue. I need more features. I need more features so customers buy. And at the end of the day, it's kind of the 80-20 rule. If you have the 80% of the value that customers want, the rest just kind of fades and then it becomes more technical debt for you. And I'm obviously talking more about software products at this point because it's a lot easier. If I don't see value in Netflix because they're not producing enough content, you know, I just cut it off next week. Part of what you were talking about before about wanting or the necessity of the product manager to go and speak to customers is that product discovery to see if they are getting the value we hope they're getting out of it, right? Whatever product that is, to see if there's something that they wish was something they could do with the product, right? And you're validating, I assume you're also validating some of your assumptions of what we should be building onto this or into this product in those customer conversations as well. And here's a saying that product managers like to say, right? Customers are really good at identifying when they have a problem. They're just really not good at identifying what that problem is. And, and all that to say is, as product managers, as people that like to solve problems, solution things, I want to talk to the customer. I want to talk about, well, you know, this button doesn't work half time. Yeah, that's a problem itself. But my, what's the outcome you're trying to get to? Because as a product manager and as someone who has engineers behind them, what I'm looking to do is say, so if I get rid of, and now what you used to click 12 buttons, what, what I'm hearing you say is your time is precious and the workflow is confusion. So if I can give you an automated way to get through your 12 steps in a much more concise way, that's going to add you val value, right? As opposed to you're telling me as a product manager, I need you to move this over here because it's got to be easier for me to get to. I need this information to flow over here, which then I can get it back and put it into this workflow and send it over to this system. That just gets complicated and messy. I want to know the problem and let us work on a, on a solution. And then ultimately, that is why people pay for products. So, because when you hear from a lot of engineers, oh, I could just go build it. But the question you have to ask yourself is, what industry am I in and why, do, why does my job exist? If I'm in a, you know, in a company that builds software products, let's say to do HR management, right? 
that product better help HR do their job really well and, and even their end users as far as their employees interact with the system. But if I'm just writing products for the sake of writing them because I can or I want to, then that's not really feeding back into the ultimate goal. And in tech, you see that happen a lot because when you're in a company, let's say an insurance company, who's leveraging tech to differentiate from their competitors, the IT technical team sometimes will be like, well, we're, we're, we're IT. And you're like, yes, but your IT that's servicing your insurance business and your end users. And you have to be very careful and focusing in on delivering that value. Can you tell me a little bit about where in your journey that was a lesson that you learned? Because so you talked about kind of the agile role as as your team transformed, you know, in that direction. And there is that agile product owner role. But that is not, I think, in my mind, the same thing as a formal product manager title, which I think kind of came over from a little bit more from I want to say consumer packaged goods. You know, I, I own like the ivory soap like product line, you know, and uh, this is where we need to go with it. So that that kind of crossed over into software uh, and technology at a certain point. But I, I feel like it was different from the agile transformation because not every organization went through the agile transformation. Yeah, 100%. So yeah, let's go down that 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 journey. And again, I think in any role, you know, this is kind of sometimes a, a hotly contested, well, I do this as a PM and I do this as a PM, or this is what I think, you know, as a PM, um, you should be doing, right? But typically the, the big rocks, right? You have things like strategy, right? So as a product manager, you're looking at the strategy, you're looking at the market you're going after. Uh, you're doing things like road mapping, right? And, and, and then they filter down from there. You know, in a product owner world, you tend to be, from an agile perspective, very embedded with the team, very close, because what you're trying to do is take that strategy, if you're so fortunate to have a PM and a PO, or you could have a, strategy, a strategic PM and a functional PM, right? You, you can get really creative in organizations. We won't go into organizational structures because that just will get hairy really quickly. But suffice to say, there's not one right way to do it. But the point is, I think the big difference is that PO role is embedded with the team in an agile world because it's kind of the ears and eyes of the product and ensuring that as things move along, it's in alignment with the strategy and what's being set by the business and the product managers. But ultimately, I think why it was natural for me is coming from an engineering background. And there's PMs that have come from being developers, quality engineers, right? People that are like, well, wait a minute, why did we get to this point? Why did we learn after the fact? Can I get in and get ahead of the requirements? Can I refine the requirements? Can I talk more of the business world all coupled with the engineering world and make a better mousetrap to give that information and ultimately get to a much faster product development of value without having to kind of iterate? I mean, there's natural iteration, but then there's, yeah, we misunderstood the requirements or we just assumed X and know that you didn't listen, right? And there's a difference between being heard and listening, right? And sometimes it's what the customer doesn't say that you have to pay more attention to than what they're actually saying sometimes. It's all good, but sometimes you have to clarify and then go back and validate some of the assumptions that you may get. So I, I think that's how they play out. And again, you can do both roles. Again, 
startups, you're going to be a little bit more lean and mean. So you may be wearing 12 different hats. You know, a large enterprise, you may be very focused on, I'm just doing roadmaps, I'm doing requirements, I'm facing the customer, and then we have some internal PMs or POs that are working with the teams and kind of staying close to the development lifecycle to make sure that those features are coming to fruition. At that point in time at IBM, did they already have a formal product manager role? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think, again, IBM being very large in any large company, you know, you have your your standard HR titles, right? I think today you'll hear the term they're offering managers, so they don't even call them product managers. Again, that's the last I heard from, from folks that are still connected there. But again, at the end of the day, right, there's titles and then there's your responsibilities, your ownership, right? And we can go into like races, right? Responsible, accountable, contributor information, and that plays a role in how you communicate as a PM or in any role within the organization. But ultimately, for our group, we did not have a formal PM. We really kind of were kind of a startup, if you will, in the organization, running lean, trying to evolve ourselves, saying it's the iron triangle, right? Your time, your money, and your priorities, right? And we always say you only get to usually control one or two of them, maybe. And so we tried to take the optimistic look to say, well, we may not be able to control our budget. So we're going to look at you know, what we have in terms of time and what we can deliver on and then cut that list and say, this is what we're going to deliver and then go back to leadership and balance that. And that is just a natural progression of understanding the ecosystem that you're working in and understanding the goals and what you own. I can see how, especially in the structure that that you described, if there's a team which is working on many different projects from many different other teams, that it's tough to embed a product manager with that development team who's going to own user journey. I mean, that that role tends to live with the the team that owns the like the long-term life cycle as opposed to, hey, we need you to come in and do a short-term sprint on this and maybe have like a fixed entry and a fixed exit. What can you do in this time to get, you know, move this thing forward? Maybe having a product owner, which is owning that goal, makes sense. But having a product manager, that kind of stays with the different teams that you're, you're joining and then leaving. Yeah. And again, I don't think there's, there's a right way or a wrong way. You know, sometimes you got to look at what's the overall goal. Like, what are some of the metrics that we're, we're measuring? And you have to be able to work with what you have. You know, if we all could say, listen, in order to be successful, I need, you know, 10 of these, 12 of those, and five of those, and it was that easy, we, we'd all be doing really well. But the, but the challenge, and I think what excites me still is saying resources are limited, whether that be money, people, time. And it's kind of like putting a puzzle together. How can we achieve, achieve the outcome? And you can talk to 10 other PMs or engineers and say, well, I could do it this way or I could do it that way. And again, they may all be great. The idea is, though, can you do it on time? Can you do it on budget? And does the customer see the value, right? And I'm, I'm boiling it down to like it being that simple, but in reality, we know it's not. If we do our job well, it looks easy, right? And anyone that does their job well, it looks easy. But I would encourage folks, even if they don't come from a technical background, they want to get into product, you know, there's lots of products, right? There's retail products, there's products you mentioned, soap before, right? Whatever that is, there is technical aspects to some of it. But a lot of it is 
being able to work well with a diverse group of people, people that have their own responsibilities, right? You have marketing, they've got to market something. Product better deliver something that they can market. You have salespeople, they're really happy when you make their life easy because they can sell product. You have engineers, they want to work on cool stuff. Now, not always, there's tech debt, there's stuff of that nature that you're like, well, it comes with the business, right? But you want to find things that they can work on that excite them. Product wants to be solving problems. Like we are, to some extent, people pleasers, right? Yes, we want to make money. We're all there to make money, right? We're not running a charity, but at the end of the day, it's got to be sustaining and hopefully it's growing. So everyone's there to do a certain role. I think as a PM, there's a certain personality and a certain passion. And we all, I don't think I've ever met another PM that's exactly the same like the other because we bring our experiences to it and we have different ways of looking at it. I tend to like to capitalize and use that to our advantage when I'm working or within my team with other PMs because there's other people out there that don't think like me. And so sometimes you have to flip the strip and say, well, how would you approach that? Because not all customers are the same, but we have to produce one product that does cater to a mass audience, right? No one builds one product and says, hey, I've, I've made success because I have a customer. It's like, okay, well, how about the next customer, the customer after that? And then nowadays, it's not just about selling it and doing a sales cycle every three years. It's, okay, are they going to renew? Are they signing up long-term? Or you know, are you going to have to be basically justifying your existence? You always are to some extent, but it gets easier and easier as you have build those relationships with those customers. And all right, we will cut it off there. Just wanted to revisit the points that I thought were important to take away. Um, The first was career strategy and tactics. Nicholas, a couple different times, emphasized examining past experience and how that can provide valuable insights and uh, lessons that can help us grow and develop in our careers from, I think, taking those nuggets of gold that you learn in each role and looking to how that can apply into the future. There was also a reference to how his accountant father kind of modeled how, despite the fact that accountants are a pretty highly skilled and, and sought after uh, skill set, he still had many roles in his career. So Nicholas kind of points out that longevity at any single company versus having many roles at many different companies might not actually be in our control, no matter how valuable we make ourselves. It's something that I kind of hadn't really thought about and has been uh, emphasized in my personal experience a a little bit more in uh, these recent times. Uh, The second kind of structural point that I wanted to call out was that product owner versus product manager. That agile product owner is a little bit different than what we think of as a, a product management role today. Uh, It's a little bit more embedded with the development team. It's responsible for the quality of the output as opposed to tied to maybe the quality of the product. You know, so it's quality of the development output as opposed to the quality of the product. 
maybe in the context of that roving team that Nicholas was on, you know, more owning the quality of the specific project that the dev team was working on. And that actually reminds me that Agile Scrum tactic was something that his dev team was able to bring to bear on problems that an overall product manager couldn't really or maybe couldn't necessarily do uh, because they were so embedded with the product side of the business that they maybe didn't have the ability to bring multiple different development strategies and modalities to bear. Just really interesting. I wanted to uh, tease a little bit of what we're looking forward to next week. I think uh, Nick asks about technical product management. So if you're interested in hearing about that, please stay tuned for episode 258 next week. But in the meantime, I think it's time to get out of here. Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm John White at B Journeyman. For Nick Cordy at Network Nerd underscore, signing off. Adios. <laughs>